0: You know, when 2020 started and life was relatively normal, I'm not sure you could have convinced me to go to any film just because, oh, we're so busy. We do so much. There'll always be movies. There'll always be theaters. We can always go see the movies any old time. And now the question more becomes, are you willing to get sick in order to go out and just experience the cinema again? As it turns out, we were. We absolutely were. Not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Although, the somewhat hilariousness of movies... Movie theaters have nothing to re-release. Sorry. (laughs) The fact that movies don't have that. The fact that movie theaters don't have any new movies to release means they've gotten desperate? And they are just re-releasing other things. And a flip side to that is that since they have re-released Hocus Pocus in theaters, it has now finally uh, broken a box office record for other films that are out right now. Because when you add on the new box office receipts for Hocus Pocus to when it first came out, it's now like passed over movies that you wouldn't think Hocus Pocus would ever pass over because it got re-released. I thought that was uh not ironic but perhaps indicative of the times that a 20 year old movie can break box office records just because it happened to get released during a time when there's just nothing
1: so what box office record did it break i, I haven't heard this you,
0: you had to call me out on that and i literally don't have the answer for you i read it in passing i thought oh that's weird oh cool and then it just flitted out of my mind like so many thoughts do into the void cuz then i started thinking Well, how many movies have we seen in 2020? We went and saw Sonic the Hedgehog. And then things started getting a little crazy and we thought that was going to be it. And so we quickly ran to go see Onward. And then everything really did shut down for six months. And then just a couple weeks ago, we went and saw Tenet. And now Regal is closing its doors until 2021 and... We may have just seen the last movie we're going to see for 2021 in theaters.
1: Yeah, in theaters. Uh, Because I know there's some. I know that there's some uh, other theater areas that are still kind of showing movies. Uh, Like The Drive In still kind of does some stuff. And then uh, the one. Theater uh, nearby, the the real small uh, indie theater. Uh, I know they're still doing things like they're like apparently the drive-in has kind of come back as um as with social distancing. So I wish it
0: hadn't died in the first place. I wish it was we can't go to regular theaters. Good thing there are five drive-ins to pick from and not well. It's just the one you wait in line for three hours. You don't get in. You sit in the back of the truck and eat cold pasta while you hear the movie where you can't see it.
1: Yeah, um we're not speaking from personal experience at all. <laughs> I think the reason that it died is because of uh, the expenses behind it. It's it's actually a fairly cheap thing to do. You just need the land, build the screen,
0: but the projector and the equipment is hell expensive.
1: Exactly. Um you basically have to have a spare bulb at all time at all times and those things are ridiculously expensive. So Um, I would say it's because of that. And the one that is surviving in our area, I think, is surviving because it's the only one for a lot of miles.
0: I'm getting to the point, Aaron, like there is a point and it's coming soon because we're about to enter flu season and I don't have much hope for the winter of 2020. (laughs) There's a point where I want to erect two flagpoles in the backyard and run a giant bed sheet between them and just run them up and let's have a drive in movie because I miss getting my freaking popcorn and my freaking icy and sitting in a chair with arms and watching a movie I've never seen before that I paid good money to see.
1: Uh, there's some issues with that, but I mean, the biggest thing is that we need a projector and we don't have one. So if anyone wants to you know, <laughs> hop on our Patreon and, <laughs> yeah, and give us a projector, that'll be that'll that'll what be that's
0: our new goal. It's not like doing more episodes. It's buying a freaking projector.
1: Yeah. Um, but, I, I think I think there's still some good left in twenty twenty. Um I've seen some really fun things. I mean in the most twenty twenty thing ever, Rick Moranis came back for an uh, a commercial with Ryan Reynolds and then while he was in New York got randomly punched. Like
0: Life is cruel.
1: What what the actual fuck twenty twenty? Like why are you beating us down so much?
0: It hurts. Very badly. Is it ironically humorous at times? Well, sure it is. But more often than not, it's just really unfortunate. And if only we'd known. Like, I could have done so much more in 2019. I could have lived more. I could have done more with my life.
1: I could have done more. I
0: could have been a contender.
1: And you could be Elizabeth.
0: He could be Aaron. And
1: And we're married married to the the idea.
0: idea. That's a plug party.
1: That sounds great.
0: You can find us on Facebook at Married to the Idea. You can email us at MarriedToTheIdeaReviews at gmail.com. Like Aaron mentioned before, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash MarriedToTheIdea. We also have our website, MarriedToTheIdea.weebly.com, which we do update every week with links to our newest episodes, as well as the links for all past seasons. We are in season four, and we are tantalizingly close to our 100th episode. So close. So close we can taste it. Uh, we did push it off last week, so we wouldn't have to worry about doing it at Halloween and I am pretty grateful for that all things considered
1: yeah that's it was totally planned that way It was
0: absolutely planned that way. Don't add us
1: <laughs> and
0: uh if you ever want to figure out where can I even listen to this, where am I listening to it right now? Fear not, we are on both SoundCloud and iTunes.
1: I don't know what's going on. Where'd
0: this sound come from? I don't recall clicking any external links.
1: I have ears. <laughs>
0: This is a fun episode today. I'm very excited for this episode. It is so very rare that we do a book versus movie comparison where I have not read the book. It's never this way. It's always me reading the book and then saying, Aaron, we should watch this movie and then I'm going to school you on how much better the book was. Not the case today. Today, Aaron is the expert on our book and movie, The Phantom Tollbooth.
1: Yeah, um, this is actually a book from my childhood. Uh, I think it was at either a classic uh, school book fair in middle school, or um, I'm pretty sure it was one of those because I know I picked up the copy and I still have that copy 20 some odd years later or you know, 15 to 20 years later.
0: The cover hasn't changed. Uh, ever since the first edition, it's always been the same cover the blue cover, the white font, and the simple illustration of Milo and talk
1: that's it's a very interesting illustration because it the illustration on the cover is not the same that you see in the book uh, because Milo is a little bit more like in on the cover he actually looks like kind of almost teenager like j- like pre-teenage in the the book he's a little younger. he almost looks like you know nine or ten with a little bit of a bigger head.
0: <laughs> now, how old were you when you read this?
1: Um, So it's, it was either, I want to say it's between 4th and 7th grade, but I want to say it was towards the earlier years.
0: So your preteens teens your 11, 12s, 13s. It,
1: the right time to read this book uh, for it to affect me the way that it did. Um, it's it's uh, I, uh, I bought it and read it, and then i think i reread it within a month wow yeah i enjoyed this book there's some really kind of fun wit behind it um but it's very much a um a great book for kids who have imagination and um the the illustrations in the book are really fun as well um there's some uh fun illustrations that remind me of like Roald Dahl or um...
0: it's so interesting that you bring up Roald Dahl because I was literally saying that Quentin Blake reminds me so much of these illustrations in this book and Quentin Blake was the illustrator that you most recognize from Roll Dahl uh, similar to illustrations from Alice in Wonderland or the line the witch and the sorry uh, the Wizard of Oz I was thinking of the Cowardly Lion and <laughs> yeah. I mixed the two up.
1: And it's a uh,
0: classic sketchy childhood illustration.
1: Yeah, very like quick pen and ink kind of thing. Um and it's they're really good. Uh the um there's some real fun uh, liberties taken. So, you know, like Talk looks like a dog with a giant uh clock in his belly. And it's literally a dog with a, cl- a giant stopwatch in the middle of his stomach and he's a
0: watchdog because
1: he's a watchdog. So, um, and there's, uh, I have to say there, there's a couple things that the movie did that I liked better. Um, one of the ones is the design of the humbug in the book. He's a lot more, he's shorter. He's like almost the height of Milo, but he's also like, um, he looks like that stodgy old banker that like, (laughs) which I mean, kind of works. I like the movie's interpretation of the humbug because the hum- he's a, he's more what the character is, if it makes sense. Because um, we'll get a little bit more into it, but I felt like the representation in the movie was a little bit closer to what I think the humbug is.
0: Well, that's gonna be a very interesting. I mean, I'm intrigued to know since this book does come with illustrations, how closely the film adheres to both the imagery from the book and what you thought about in your head. But uh, while I was reading- Not even close at all. (laughs) Uh, Also, let's talk about that a little bit. um, Because this book, uh, at its core, is really about getting um, a love of learning. And I don't know, Aaron, did that come through to you as a young kid?
1: Um, So it's presented as kind of a hero's journey uh, where- you know this kid Milo is tasked with rescuing um uh, two princesses essentially uh from a uh a floating uh castle um uh, that he has to travel the lands and then go basically fight demons uh because they are called demons in the book and in the movie um they uh and but the demons aren't your typical demons they're more of a metaphor you know it's like the the backwards or the the hind the hibbering hindsight where they're always looking at where they've been and going in the opposite direction uh, and it's this like kind of creepy looking thing with like backwards knees and and like like a peanut shaped body it's the the representations of everything is actually it's so imaginative um, so I reread the book before we watched the movie, and I'm really glad I did and didn't just rely on my my uh my previous knowledge of the book because rereading it as an adult and having experienced everything that I've experienced since the last time I read this book it it really to me it's like almost a quote unquote modern retelling of Alice in Wonderland with a almost scholastic uh lean to it
0: It's quite impressive this uh, author, Norton Jester, uh, I read that he had not read Alice in Wonderland at the time of writing The Phantom Tollbooth. And yet, it is so similar in its structure, in its world building, in its storytelling. You can make uh, comparisons between so many characters, some equivalents. uh, And it's really cool to see that even a person who never read it could still imagine a place that it's almost like a sister location to wonderland.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I think it's the kingdom of wisdom is the the name of the land. Um, and, and it's really funny because I don't have the book in front of me um, to like, to clarify all this stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's, I would, I would, I think that's a good thing where, Alice in Wonderland, the unexpected happens um, and you're always, you know, madness rules. This one, there's a lot more order, but there's still a lot of zeniness behind it. So, um, you well, know,
0: princesses are rhyme and reason. Exactly. And without rhyme and reason in the land, everything's kind of weird. The officer follows the letter of the law, but not justice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So like all these little things. Um There's a a lot of really cool stuff about just the creation of this book that I really quickly want to provide some backstory on so that we can get into the nitty-gritty of talking about the book and its film adaptation.
1: Which is it's actually really good for me, too, because I actually don't know much about this.
0: Yeah, so I thought I could bring something to the table and not be completely (laughs) in the dark. So, 1958, Norton Jester has just received a grant from the Ford Foundation to write a children's book about cities. Uh as with all grants, Jester had to pitch his idea for the book to them to receive the money for the grant. He's talking about, "Yeah, you know, a lot of people live in the suburbs and they just don't understand how important and beautiful cities are and these people these kids growing up won't have any idea about what they need to do in a city because they live out in suburbs. So I'm going to write this book about making this important and better." So, he spends months just taking copious notes pages and pages of journals and getting nowhere with the story he has got nothing all the creative energy he had is just sapped away and he's got nothing to go on and he is like okay I need to just take a break from this and I need to just focus on something else and It literally starts with him being on the street talking to a boy who asked a question about infinity and just kept asking him question after question after question. He's like, what if there was a story about a boy, a boy who has too many questions, a boy who is is curious, Uh, a boy who is lazy? And uh, he starts working on this story, uh, this little boy named Milo. And uh he lives in a house in brooklyn heights with a cartoonist Jules pfeiffer whose bedroom is immediately below justers and pfeiffer hears him pacing in the middle of the night above his head and eventually he just like goes up and knocks on the door and is like so what you doing up here <laughs> what you
1: do <laughs> it's like
0: so late what are you doing and uh he was surprised that the insomnia wasn't because of the city's book, but because of this book about a boy. That he's like, Are you supposed to be working on this other book entirely? Didn't they pay you money for this? Yeah, I know. I'll get back to that. But I got this story about Milo now, and I'm really focusing on that. Um, and Jester showed Pfeiffer the draft, and without being asked to, the artist just starts sketching ideas and illustrations for this book on his own time. Uh, he actually starts, uh, after reading the draft, he's like, This story requires a different illustration bend than i am familiar with he's already acclaimed cartoonist he's like i gotta get better for this book so he like doubles down goes back learns brand new techniques to create this alice in wonderland frank l Baum style sketchy art style for the book again he, uh, jester has no idea that his cartoonist neighbor is doing this he just keeps <laughs> working on the story um he finally shows this to an uh, editor at Random House, and some of the people at Random House are like, you know, the book's vocabulary is going to be too difficult. At this time, educators advise against children's literature that contained words the audience didn't already know because they feared the unfamiliar would discourage young readers, which, as it turns out, is not the way it goes. When a young child reads a word they don't understand, and, if they, and they have the capacity and wherewithal to define it and learn about it, then it just inspires more growth and knowledge and you learn more as you proceed.
1: It makes them ask questions, which is the whole point of the book.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh so Random House buys the book and uh <laughs> Jester and Pfeiffer are now working together on it. Uh Jester does the cooking, so if Pfeiffer wants to eat, he has to do the drawings. And so they're like they make this exchange, like, okay, I'll I'll work. Please feed me. I, I promise I'll work. <laughs> uh and I think it's again really cool that this already acclaimed artist is like I got to get better for this book. This book that he saw enough in to be inspired by and interested by and to be challenged by because Jester would constantly draw things like um, the triple demons of compromise. One is short and fat. One is tall and thin. And the third is exactly like the first two.
1: Yeah. How do you
0: draw that? <laughs> like he would like, literally just start throwing things at him to see what he would do with that. Uh, Pfeiffer did get his revenge by depicting the author as the weatherman. oh
1: i was one because that's one of the oddest illustrations in the book because he's he's a little shorter he's uh, a little heavier set and he's got like a a goatee beard and like i can't remember if if he's like balding he has a bald spot but i remember he has like black hair and in oh my god (laughs) so that's 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 hilarious i love that
0: (laughs) um there's so many things that Jester's was inspired by. He was inspired by The Wind in the Willows, that was his favorite book. Uh, so much so huh? that he insisted that the Phantom Toll booth have end paper maps where it has the maps on the front and the back.
1: I don't remember it having it on the the it's copy hard, that I had
0: only a hardcover would have end paper maps because it gotcha. does press inside the cover Ooh, of the book. Maybe we have to look yeah, into getting that. I agree we should get something for that. Yeah.
1: Because the illustration that you have it's like I think it's even before all the credits and everything like that. Uh, the map is actually really kind of neat to look at. I don't think I appreciated it as much as a kid, but now as an adult, I'm like, this is
0: kind of neat. The really nice thing about this map is that, uh, Pfeiffer did not want to do it. So Jester just drew the whole thing himself and then gave it to him and said, do it in your style. Like I, this has to be here. I'm, I did all the work. Just copy it in your work <laughs> now, please. All right. <laughs> co- okay,
1: I've done most everything now. Just finish it. <laughs> I've laid the ball up now. Slam dunk. <laughs>
0: Uh, one of the coolest things about Jester is as a child, he had synesthesia, which is where you relate colors to numbers to letters to oh, sounds like, that,
1: you know, that makes sense.
0: Like, that's a really cool like that makes a lot of stuff in the book seem to come from a mind of a person who can make these odd associations.
1: Yeah. And we'll get into some of that kind of weird associations that they have. And it's like. Now, knowing that he had uh, synesthesia 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 uh it makes it makes much more sense that Which like is
0: where your senses get confused yeah jumbled. like you
1: smell colors or you hear um you numbers he- or, hear numbers or something like that
0: all these different ways that things can like, kind of get jumbled up yeah um the last thing I'm gonna say, as far as my research went, because it's only as fun so far as it pertains to the book, and that's what we really should be talking about right now. <laughs> uh, the funniest thing I found was that uh, this got published in 1961, which was its its competition at the time was books like The Bronze Bow, James and the Giant Peach, Ooh. um, and they were not expecting many sales for the Phantom Toll Booth, uh, and so he was kind of sad when he didn't see it on bookshelves where he lived. Uh, turns out his mother was equally disappointed. And so, uh, as her son puts it, she would go around terrorizing bookstore owners into put displaying it on their shelves. Uh, oh, my God. And whether it was her or whether it's just because the book is really good, uh, they say it was just a good review. Emily Maxwell wrote a strong review of it in The New Yorker and actually compared it to The Pilgrim's Progress, which is cool. And I don't know, Aaron, if you've ever read The Pilgrim's Progress, but The Pilgrim's Progress is kind of like how you awake the spirit. This is how you kind of told is how you awake the mind and that one strong review is all it took for people to start reading this and people being like i want to stand on the street corners and shove this book into every hand i see it's so good you are a changed person when you read it it's it's an important part of children's literature and not even not even just children's literature but literature in general and how it shapes young minds and how things move forward uh and I think it's really cool that uh, after that, it sold really well. It's uh, sold over 3 million copies. It's still in print. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those books. It's kind of like My Father's Dragon. It's a book that has touched a bunch of people. Or even, uh, honestly, the uh, Patricia C. Reads uh, Calling oh, on Dragons books. Oh, God. Like, I
1: love those. The Enchanted Forest Chronicles. The Enchanted uh, Forest
0: Chronicles. It's only after I started doing fan art of that that people started finding me like, thank you for doing that no one talks about it and yet it's so good this seems to me to be one of those books that no one talks about and yet is so very good and pivotable and applicable and it's been on teachers lists it's been on top 100 books for students it's still here and yet i don't think anyone ever brought it up to me aaron until you did and
1: i i honestly i think what pushed me or what drew my attention at the beginning was the title uh phantom toll booth um i was like well that's kind of weird and then i looked at the pack i'm like well the the two don't really meet but i'm still interested in it um the synopsis is very it's it's like not even a paragraph it's like half a paragraph and it describes a few of the characters like um Macra, macrab uh the uh not so wicked witch Mm-hmm. uh uh alex being who sees mm-hmm. through things uh and then uh the talk who ticks i think the, okay. those are the three characters that are described and it's it's very unique because i remember enjoying this book and i would talk about yeah one of my favorite books of all time and still to this day it's still one of my favorite books of all time uh is the phantom toll booth and I'd be like what is that and Uh, It was it was so inspirational to me that my very first cosplay I ever did was a one of the demons, uh, uh, the terrible trivium. Uh, I loved the suit and hat style. And then what happens is uh, the illustration. The illustration is 100 times better than the movie uh, character design. I like the voice for the terrible trivium. I don't like the character design because the character design is super 70s um, or late 60s even. But uh, he's, he's a very kind of tall, thin gel- gentleman uh, wearing a suit and wearing like a bowler hat, but doesn't have a face. He has like the skull and the neck, but doesn't have a face at all. And I'm like.
0: Very slender man,
1: Very slender man. unfortunately. Um, <laughs>
0: Which is what everyone thought Aaron was dressed up as for the entirety I, of the con. I
1: had a couple people t- ask to take my picture, and I'm pretty sure because they thought I was like a, a dapper, the dapper man or something like that. I think I had one person recognized me. And they said it as, like, we were walking by each other. Also, I was wearing a face mask that was nearly impossible to see out of in a very crowded con, because we went to Dragon Con in this, and I do not recommend it in the slightest. Yeah, you see those
0: cosplayers that, like, can't fit through doors? and wear full-on face masks. Like They have to have handlers. I was Aaron's handler for you, that Dragon Con. You
1: were, and you didn't even know what a, a cosplay handler was, a cosplayer handler was. But it, I had to
0: guide you onto escalators and make sure that you would sit down I, on a chair.
1: And I couldn't enjoy myself and i so i don't recommend it. like if you want to do a, co- a costume that has a mask that might be hard to see out of do it make sure you have someone that can help you and make sure this isn't the only day you're going to con because that will ruin the experience for you uh but i i still look back with fond memories of being able to do that and i actually recently um people were talking about you know your first cosplay or your first dragon con experience and i would t- uh, and i i've told the story a couple times and each time i've told it people have been like Oh my God! You were the terrible Trivium. I loved that book, and it's and it's so great to see that because um it it's not a book that is well known, and I dressed up in one of the more obscure characters from a book that's not well known. So, I, I thought Dragon Con it might be the one place where people recognize me, but there have been times when like you can dress up in a pretty super obvious one, and people are also like, "Who are you?" So it's, like
0: me at free comic book day this past weekend oh my God. mabel pines and like oh are you rainbow bright <laughs> i mean i'm equally bright and colorful so i suppose
1: Swinging a miss i i actually got asked if i was steven universe yep so that was you like you have
0: done steven universe before though yeah so i won't we won't we won't judge them too harshly it is 2020 let's give everyone some grace on this year
1: yeah exactly and i'm uh I did enjoy myself cosplaying as the Terrible Trivium. I didn't enjoy that and no one got it. That was kind of the that was kind of the the hard thing for me. But I think now if I did it, I would do it a little differently. I would still do. Now the terrible. if you did
0: it, I would dress up with you.
1: Yeah, I don't know who you could dress up as, but like, I, but we could figure something out. And I think it would be a little the bit more
0: magician. I don't know. There's just something very funny about that whole idea.
1: And <laughs> we'll get into that character here in just a minute. So. Um, but this book is still absolutely inspirational to me. Um, I actually, uh, I, after I told the story one time, someone was like, oh, yeah, I heard the audiobook of this read by David Hyde Pierce.
0: Oh, that's a good get.
1: Yeah. David Hyde Pierce. I adore him. And um,
0: he would make mincemeat of all these syllables and puns. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs>
1: He's almost like classically, classically trained. Um, and they actually sent me the file for it so i was very i was very thankful
0: um now the book came out in the early 60s -hmm. what year did the film adaptation come out i think
1: it was 70 uh you know what there is actually a piece of trivia on that um it it was actually approved to be made okay the film was actually made in 1967 uh to 68 uh, but due to MGN's, uh financial problems and frequently changing management, the film was not heavily promoted. When it was finally released in 1970, uh, the studio had only exhibited it for matinees on weekends for two weeks. And it was not a box office success. I wonder, I wonder why. why. Uh, so uh, and we'll talk way more about the movie because I, I have issues with the movie and there are things that the movie did better mm-hmm. than the book. Um in a couple small ways. But um before we get to that, I think we need to head into the sponsor dome.
0: Two sponsors enter. One sponsor leaves. Uh
1: this week, of course, we as every week, we are uh sponsored by Audible. Uh Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to slash married to the idea and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.trial.com slash to the Idea. Remember, that it's T-O, the idea, not number two. Uh, why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And, of course, what we're going to recommend today is, is the book that we're talking about, The Phantom Toll Tollbooth. Uh, and it's actually uh, narrated by Rain Wilson and Norton Juster. So I don't know what the divide is. You know, maybe Norton Jester jumps in for a couple of voices or he just provides a little bit of back narration or he's the narrator. I don't know yet.
0: I'd be curious of knowing, Aaron. I didn't do this with my research. Uh, I do know that after uh, the Phantom booth got published and had great success, uh, he wrote back to Ford like, listen, I, I didn't do your book. I did this book instead. I'm so very sorry. And he didn't hear back from them. For years really until decades later he got the news that apparently they actually really liked the phantom toll booth so it was okay that he used the money <laughs> for that
1: <laughs> hey i'm sorry that i didn't i'm try. sorry i
0: didn't use your money i made different art with it
1: <laughs> uh and it's really funny that it took decades so um yeah it's uh only about four hours long uh four hours 41 minutes so about five hours so it's a nice little maybe a half road trip or, you know, the trip down kind of book. Uh, I personally recommend it to anyone that wants to read a Alice in Wonderland style book. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's definitely something that it like the first time I read it, I didn't get everything. Um, And I actually thought that the two kingdoms were named the same for some reason. I thought it was just like a weird thing, but they are different. Um, I didn't get, you know, the unabridged joke on the name uh i didn't there were some things i didn't get but i did i still enjoyed it um that this and one of my other favorite books uh called the arcadians hit me at the same time so you know this kind of helped inspire my love for learning and whereas the arcadians inspired my love for stories
0: and you talk about the arcadians all the time
1: yeah and i didn't realize it was based on a bunch of myths already in play then they're just kind of borrowed elements from it it's kind of like lore olympus i guess in that way um so i, I still i recommend that one as well uh it has a donkey char- or a character who is got turned into a donkey and he's hilarious without being eddie murphy <laughs> so uh so yeah the phantom tollbooth Booth* uh, by norton juster narrated by rain wilson uh is our audible recommendation to you today and our other uh sponsor, uh is something that Liz and I actually worked on personally uh to help get it to where it is now um I actually didn't realize this until this past weekend that uh we basically helped a com- uh, pom- excuse me a comic book get published
0: um yeah we were unaware honestly because we didn't end up getting the gig that we thought we uh We took a swing and a miss. Uh, We we struck for the hills and we landed in the trees. But uh, (laughs) basically, here in Knoxville, we've got this comic book shop called Nirvana Comics. And the owners, Richard and Amber, are just the nicest, sweetest people, husband and wife team, who make a really great experience for any person who's interested in comics, which should be all of us, because comics are a great way to tell stories. Uh, Richard approached me, oh, i got to be over a year ago at this point with a script for a comic book that he had been working on for quite some time, which was a adapted from a musical that he had written and performed previously because they used to own a theater production company. Cool people. Cool history. Uh, but it was called Cult of Dracula. And he said, I want you to take a read at it uh, and see if you'd be interested in working on it, doing lettering for it. Now, I don't know if you'll like it. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of violence. There's a there's a lot of gruesomeness. But go ahead, <laughs> take a look. And I read through the first 22 pages. And I came back to him and I said, "You're right. I I didn't like it, but it's very good. So I am going to work on it because I am not a blood and gore person. But the story was cool. And I said I am willing to overlook all this unseemly blood for you, Richard. And so I then turned to Aaron and said, "Aaron, I haven't asked to letter. I'm going to learn how to letter." But I don't know how to run Illustrator. You know how to run Illustrator. Can we tag team this? And so me and Aaron worked together over the course of two weeks to letter, balloon, sound effect, the entirety of that 22-page script for the first episode, the first book. The of first Cult, issue. Issue of Cult of Dracula. We finish it. We submit it. And then a couple of weeks later, we find out that we our lettering would not be part of it. And we're like, you know what? We're amateurs. We didn't think it mattered. We didn't think we would do it. So I understand completely. It has just come out this week. Uh, You can get it anywhere, but it's all sold through Nirvana because Richard, as the owner of the comic, is the one who is distributing it. So I highly recommend getting a copy. There's like three different variant covers you can pick from. But we did find out at this most recent weekend, which was Halloween Comic Book Day, where it's free Halloween comics. It
1: was also signing for the, the Also issue. signing
0: for a Cult of Dracula. Almost it was,
1: like a little bit of a little mini-con, like a
0: mini-mini-mini-con.
1: It was, micro-con. because
0: he was there as the writer, obviously, but Georges Genty, who did the artwork, was also there. And I've spoken and went to talks with Georges before, and he's a great off, uh, a great illustrator, a great comic book illustrator. Was he
1: the illustrator, or was he the, um, the cover artist? Cover artist. Yeah, You've seen him I thought... do his
0: work uh, on Firefly comics too. That seems he works with Joss Whedon that way in doing Serenity and stuff. Yeah, um, but it was there that we found out that even though we weren't ultimately selected to be the typers, the the, written, the letterers, yeah, even though we weren't asked to be the letterers in the long run, what is important is having a completed, finished product to show to a publisher. Because if you don't have that, if you have to give them any extra steps. It's not finished. They won't look at it. So us getting those letters in there was just as important as the artwork, just as important as the script, just as important as the cover because it got it in a finished state to a publisher who could then say yay or nay on it. And that's the important thing. Edits can always come later. Improvements can always come later. But having a finished product is key. And It is pretty cool to know that even though we're not credited on the book, and that's fine because we're not professional letterers, it is cool to know that we helped bring a project to life.
1: We actually got special mention, uh, like special thanks to, um, and there's a list of people, and our names are in it.
0: Uh, I I didn't see that yet.
1: That's Um, nice. And and he's and he told us that he said that he, you know, he would make sure to thank us for our work in the book. And when we we are. So there is a comic book now that exists that is selling out in places Mm -hmm. uh, that has our name in it. And that's incredibly uh, really it's it's neat. Um, I would love to continue because lettering is very close to graphic design. It's text design and everything like that, I would love to keep doing that. Um, I've not gotten the opportunity yet, but I would love to continue doing that, because um, you know, if he needs another one to be, be able to present, and that's all we do, you know, it will just give me more practice. That's fine. um, Because it was really neat, Is it, it was a neat process to see, and then like, because w- we did a couple classes, um, I know I watched at least one or two of them.
0: Yeah, uh, shout out to Your public library, not only where we found the movie of The Phantom Tollbooth, but your membership at a public library gets you membership access to lynda.com, which has tons of teaching courses, instructional videos for you to learn new skills. And that was how I learned how to letter.
1: Yeah, um, I actually completely forgot about that but it's um yeah and we've read we obviously we've read the first issue because we helped um get get it through
0: it is october if you like gore if you like the idea of the dracula mythos if you like crazy dudes and cults <laughs> and orgies and demons and mysteries and murder this is right up your alley we highly recommend cult of dracula by richard davis
1: um so and you should be able to pick that up uh anywhere or be able to order it on amazon so uh but yeah again that is cult of dracula by richard davis so that'll help you get that ordered (laughs) (laughs) um and if anything just go see that our names are mentioned in it so uh
0: getting back into our story one more fun little thing i was curious if norton jester had written anything else
1: actually he's written a few things yeah because if you go to the audible page um and click his profile uh he's got about three books and one translated book for the translation for phantom told but it says looking for more uh listeners also enjoy it's a bunch of names like wilson Rawls, uh hannigan e.l cloningsburg uh, but also Roald Dahl is on there. Mm-hmm.
0: So Yale uh, that is an author I have not thought of in a while, but I did enjoy I, her work too. Uh, the book by Norton Jester that I am familiar with is "The Dot and the Line: A Romance in Lower Mathematics."
1: I I've heard of that, and I, I don't think I tried reading it. So the the It didn't it didn't draw me in like the Phantom Tollbooth. There is one called "The Odious Ogre."
0: Mm -hmm. And he's still writing as recently as 2011. No shit. Mm -hmm. He also did Sourpuss and Sweetie Pie. You might be familiar with that. Kids might be familiar with Sourpuss and Sweetie Pie. I have seen that on shelves. And I think that's pretty cool to see a person who started with perhaps his most well-known book and kept going after that. There's a lot of writers that they write their one book. And then they kind of disappear or they just don't get as big. But I don't think it's about getting as big again. It's like being a one hit wonder that still makes good music afterwards. It's okay to have that career trajectory. They don't all have to be. uh... Boy, I was trying to think of a one hit wonder. And all I could think of is never give you up. No. um, uh,
1: Catcher in the Rye. J.D. Salinger,
0: Salinger, Salinger uh, the person who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird.
1: She did. She's done another one. She did another one. though. No Set
0: a Watchman was released in her later years, where her sanity and her mental faculties may not have been in complete control, and she was pressured to publish this book that kind of sours everyone's impression of to kill a mockingbird yeah it's a whole big thing
1: we may have to get into that one time so now Aaron,
0: Uh, i see you making a very big face over there behind the microphone what you got
1: so again i'm I'm on the audible um thing uh and there's a little uh bio about it talking about how he uh is an architect and a planner and then he's also authored a bunch of uh children's books uh, he actually collaborated with someone called Sheldon Harnick on the libretto for an opera based on the Phantom Tollbooth. The musical adaptation, with a score by Arnold Black, premiered in 1995 and soon will be performed in schools and theaters nationwide. There is a theater production of Phantom Tollbooth out there.
0: I saw that, too. I was wondering if you would know about that. And yet no, I another, didn't know about that. Yet another book slash movie on our list of things that got musical adaptations that we were not aware of.
1: Yeah. And so, and then you're talking about the dot and the line. There was a, an Academy award winning animated film based on that. So that might be another one that we do in the future. So I
0: really need to go back into Norton's mindscape.
1: Yeah. And we might like read the book. Like we both read the book and then watch the movie. So, cause I want, cause I read the book. Liz didn't, uh, before we watched the the mo- movie adaptation, uh because I kind of wanted her to experience it fresh, it's not it's not as good as the book, but it's not bad either i I would say it's it's yeah. a fun adaptation, but there is it's similar to like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory where the m- movie is kind of takes its own views on everything, and the book has its own things and they share just like certain things
0: all right, so let's talk it through what were some differences? That you did like. Oh, sorry, I guess yeah. What were some things that the movie, which was animated by Chuck Jones, yeah. fan favorite.
1: Oh god. What were
0: some things that you liked about the movie that was different than how it was presented in the book, but different in a better way?
1: So there's not many. Um, I've already I, I discussed a little bit about the um, the humbugs, his design, because in the book the illustrations by uh, the gentleman who was neighbors with Norton Jester. Uh, He uh, he presented the humbug as more as the typical like, (laughs) whereas in the movie, he's more of a a huckster, a trickster. Um, He'll say anything to be important, which I felt is more. If you look at some of the lines that the the humbug does or he does actually say there's a scene um, where milo is talking to king azaz in uh after the the dinner the speeches and everything like that and they basically like go through this whole thing where milo presents a question humbug takes his side and then king azaz asks a question and then the humbug takes his the king takes the king's side and it's back and forth back and forth and the, the finally the two of them realize what's going on and they like turn it back on him and he goes well perhaps a young man and basically describes the whole plot of the book (laughs) uh to milo before it even happens and it's it's a fun little scene and it turns it back and then like the king's like well since he's such an expert in it i guess he'll join you and it's like they turn it back on him and it's it's a great little scene uh but the the visual representation of it he's more like like stuffy old person you know walking around like a big overcoat and you know big hat pressed down on their head and just there you don't see much of his face because I don't think he knew how to draw like a bug in 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 person whereas his you know it's Chuck Jones Chuck Jones and it's really funny because Chuck Jones's illustrations are different than the illustrations in the book but they're also like similar um there's some things that Uh, Like, especially with the demon designs, like it felt very Dr. Seuss-esque at times with like traveling and uh, the the demons and stuff like that felt very Dr. Seuss. But that's also because he was one of the main uh, animators for Dr. Seuss for a while. You know, he did. I I don't think he did Grinch Knight, but he did. um, I
0: was just looking up Grinch Knight to see who animated that bad boy. I don't
1: think it was him, but it could be. Um, the, The human designs make me think it's not him um there's no like big-eyed protagonist kind of thing you know what i mean
0: fair enough
1: uh where we see in this movie and then like with cindy lou who and uh how the grinch stole christmas or you know a cricket in central square kind of thing so
0: yeah it doesn't look like he was involved in that but you can tell straight up when they they, they, when they emulated the dog, chuck jones with that when one. <laughs> talk the dog comes in i mean that's max from yeah, How the Christmas.
1: It's it's Chuck. It's a Chuck Jones dog. He was, if you watch it, like his big big legit.
0: eyes and those long long eyelashes. <laughs>
1: but yeah, the uh, when are you talking? Well, yeah, and like Milo, Milo is the stereotypical kid that Chuck Jones did. So, um,
0: Cindy Lou Who. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, there's there's some other ones like cricket in Central Square. The the Christmas follow up to it is uh, uh, it it it's felt very Chuck Jones esque. So, um. I did like the animation for the most part. There are like, like I said, there are some things that were changed Um, character designs. I think honestly were some of the best parts of this movie. Like in the book, the mathematician and King is are like twins. And it makes sense because then the princesses are essentially twins as well. So it kind of makes sense that they're the exact same person. I liked the visual differences in the movie because it's a little easier to tell them apart, but plus it's, i don't know it just kind of makes sense um he's tall and thin or the mathematician in the movie is tall and thin like a pencil whereas king azaz is a little shorter and a little squattier like a book so i kind of i kind of like the 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 visual differences in it um
0: as a person who's never read the book uh the movie was very fun to me because it starts off live action and i was like "aaron i thought this was an animated don't worry you'll you'll see" ah i see we're we're playing that game we're going to go through a teleporter into a different world and we're going to change
1: uh, which it, it's it is 100% a thing for the movie so that way they can explain
0: well the fact that there's a phantom toll booth it makes sense to show that you're in a different world visually yeah. With the visual medium uh when i look at the plot it looks like it hits most of the points and most of the characters that not I even was... close
1: it, it's only about i would say one third to half of the characters that you meet in the book and i'm talking like important characters but they only
0: have an hour to get through it and i think that's yeah. the thing about adaptation one i think this they book... kept one of
1: the most most annoying characters in my opinion but whatever
0: <laughs> uh what was your most annoying character
1: i did not like uh the mighty din or uh the um the doctor the doctor of noise i um, didn't care for them in the book they're not as bad but in the movie they are super annoying it's it's a product of the time and like the the cool change of cuz the din is a, kind of an amorphous blob but they they like actually show what like the things are with him doing that. I thought that was kind of neat, but the voice is very like, yeah, I'm the mighty Dan. Yeah. It was like, "Mm," like Wolfman crothers or whatever. I'm like, "Mm," did not care for that. Cause like when he laughs, when the Din laughs in the book, it's like car crashes or glass breaking. It sounds, it's, it's a very loud sound, grating sound. Um, and in the the book, again, uh, the doctor, I'm, I'm forgetting his name, uh, cacophony I think so. Something along those lines doesn't just sit there and break glass and slam doors and stuff like that. He's a doctor of sound, but he only likes loud sounds because those are what make him money um or you know that's In what Atlanta, people are without
0: rhyme and reason it's the ugly sounds that people want most
1: exactly
0: i think it has a lot to do with adaptation like you look at the last harry potter book and the confrontation between harry and lord voldemort is just basically a conversation until finally oh, something happens and but when it's you such read a it, great conversation when you read it you have time to think about it and process it and this book seems to be high on the puns and the thinking man's joke. And in the movie, you had to turn all that conversation into a a wand fight. And in this movie adaptation, you had to say, well, how much can we get away with before we're just reading the book to you? And you're not getting it because you don't have time to stop and pause and reflect upon the pun.
1: And there were times it made sense, like with the Din showing the different representations of the... Uh, of the the sounds that are being made but then it's like my one of my biggest problems with this book or with this movie is the music in it the music in it is not necessarily bad but it's super uh, punching down it's not
0: oh you can see this whole thing got turned into a musical once already so it can be done apparently it
1: can be done but it was very like um, I remember as a kid, it didn't bother me as much, um because you know it's it's music what who cares? but then, like I reread the book and then I'll re the movie, and I'm just like, it doesn't need this, and there are times when they like rushed through things, but then they like slowed down areas that didn't need to be slowed down, like it showed a lot of Milo and talks travels through like winding roads and you know going in and out and all around, and it's like. We didn't need this like they don't spend that much time in the doldrums, but there's a whole song dedicated and this whole thing about like the doldrums being evil was weird too. like they're not demons. They they yeah, they like like slowly having the car sink down into the 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 muck in the mire kind of made sense. But then like all of this, like where they become evil, that was weird as hell. Um, and I definitely didn't agree with that, but there are so many great characters. Like there's this whole scene where they go to the Valley of sound, but it's completely silent because, um, I think she's like this, the mistress of silent or the mistress of sound or something like that. Um, got tired of people not appreciating the sounds. She, she said no more. And You cannot talk. You cannot speak. You can't make noise. Nothing. And uh, like there are people protesting because they want sound again. They want to be able to hear. They want to be able to experience life in this way that they're not. And so Milo goes and visits her in her uh, the castle of sound or whatever castle of noise. um, And she's sitting there in this chair. There's a great illustration of her, too. Um, She has this like big, that big, long, tall cap with the the ribbon off of it. Um, But she's sitting there and she's just in awe of what's playing on the radio. And nothing is playing on the radio. It's silence. It's like half an hour silence. 30 minutes of lull. It like she it's like this whole pun about like these different ways of not listening to anything but the silences are different in their own way it's like you know if we're in here and there's no sound it's a lot more muffled it's a lot more you're like almost a little claustrophobic but if you're like out in the woods and there's all you can hear is wind through the trees or if you don't even hear wind there's it's a different kind of silence and it's like that makes a ton of sense yeah it's
0: like john cage's 433 have you ever heard of this no um 433 It's this uh, accompaniment by a composer named John Cage. It is four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. Like literally, the man goes and sits down at the piano, and the orchestra just does not play for four minutes and 33 seconds. And there are the first movement, the second movement, the third movement. And again, silence. But depending on where you hear 433, it's a completely different experience. If you hear it outside, if you hear it inside a a tight room, if you hear it in a movie theater, if you like, depending on where you hear it, it's completely different.
1: And that and that makes sense because because she explains like the differences in silence makes sense, and she's she's like weeping at the beauty of it. It's like wow, and, and it it just kind of gets you to look at things in a different way.
0: That's a Studio Ghibli. Mo- yeah. moment if i'd ever heard of one
1: and uh how milo actually helps this the city or the to get sound back is a concept that you don't really think about all that time but like if you're in the middle of a conversation with someone and they kind of interrupt you and you 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 keep that word on in your mouth trying to get ready to say it again it, it's almost like you have a sound hidden in your mouth because milo throughout this because she takes him on a tour and like um shows him how they made sounds and how they collected sounds how they you know and he would it would kind of try to sneakily grab something and she's like oh you can't keep that uh you might be able to get a souvenir but we've been out we've been sold out of everything for a while now or like he would try to make a sound and then get the bottle of it and she wouldn't like let him touch anything so it was like he would keep trying keep trying and then finally he's like he goes he goes to say thank you or bye like bye that's it and like it and she kind of like interrupts him or he just like and he just like kind of waves her and leaves and so they have this like giant cannon and he just kind of goes and tips the bye into it and they light it and and it's a kind of a fun moment where like you kind of see the bye go from the cannon to like the wall or whatever and like text it's really neat and they don't include that in all. They you get the stupid Doctor Cacophony and the mighty uh, the, the awful Din. It's like I I I, I kind of get why they included it, but at the same time, I don't. So there's there's like th- there's that whole sequence that got cut. Um, they go to the forest of reality, um, where they have to look at reality in different ways. There's a whole scene where Milo goes to a house and it says the world's shortest giant or no, no, sorry. The giant. It's literally a plaque above the door saying the giant and a dude opens the door and he looks normal. And that guy's like, hello, can I help you? And he's like, yeah, I want to know if we're lost um, or where we are. He's like, but I want to speak to the giant. He's like, oh, I'm the giant. I'm the world's shortest giant. But I can't tell you if you're lost. Why don't you go talk to the midget next door? And so he goes around the side and there's a plaque over the door saying the midget. And he knocks on the door. And it's the same guy. <laughs> and he's like, uh, I, I was just told to come talk to you by the giant. Oh, yeah. Great fellow him. What can I do for you? Um, are you the midget? Yeah, I'm the world's tallest midget. <laughs> and then he does it again two more times with the fat man and the skinny man, and then finally the last one he realizes like the, it's all the same guy. But the guy is like, yeah, this allows me to have four jobs. And you know, to a dwarf, I am a giant. To a giant, I'm a dwarf. To a fat person, I'm skinny. To a skinny person, I'm fat. You know, because he was very average. So it was. It's a really great way to look at perspectives. Um, there's, he meets a kid, uh, Alex Bing, who sees through things, uh, who is like four feet off the ground, but walks normally. He just looks like he's floating, but he's not like hovering. He's just there. And because in his family, they grow down (laughs) instead (laughs) of growing up. (laughs) So they will always know how tall they'll be when they become full grown. Uh, It's clever. It's such a neat concept. And. Uh, he goes to stairs that are infinity and he tries climbing them and he like runs up a portion and then he just keeps uh, going very fast. And eventually he just stops because he can't go any further. It's infinity. He's tired. He, I mean, you can try to count to infinity, but it's literally impossible. So you can't reach the top of the infinity stairs.
0: So let's so let's look at this then. So you've start all these really cool scenes that I had no idea existed before. Right. But I also feel the same could be said of perhaps if you do go and read Alice in Wonderland, there's probably tons of characters that don't make it into... Not the Disney the version. The Disney version yeah. of Alice in Wonderland, which is still a good adaptation, but probably does miss out on a lot of stuff does turn into a bit of a musical and I'm doing a little research on musicals. I don't know. I just, I like them, but I didn't know much about them. So I've been doing a bit of research when the emotions are too much to talk about, you sing. And when your emotions are too much to sing about, you dance. So in that regard, Aaron, (laughs) no, I mean, that's, that's literally how musical theater is built. When you can't sing your emotions anymore, you dance them. Uh, You just keep moving. I'm going to dance my feelings away. I mean, it's straight up footloose in here. Uh, But the idea is it's supposed to be emotions that you can't express through words. So, yes, I agree that just turning it into like a montage song of them going through without them having to express any high emotion doesn't really mean it's called for a musical. So I agree with you on that. But we have all these scenes that you're talking about, how they don't show up in the official product. Um, What do you think, then? Could this get adapted into an hour and a half runtime film, or is the Phantom booth better suited for television adaptation?
1: If it were up to me, I say it needs to be an animated television show. Uh, because I think if you try to do realistic CGI, it's not going to look good. I think there's going to be too much uncanny valley, or it has to be very stylized, very very stylized uh, CGI. Um, I think in the hands, because it's, it wouldn't be a very long, it'd be like a limited run one, because if you try to add more to it, it's not, there's not, there's a lot to it, but I don't think there's more than say like maybe two short seasons or like a limited run.
0: The story feels episodic when you describe between all the different characters that he meets, how each one is a different thing. It's very allegorical. So I there- imagine that each episode would be about a different thing that he meets along the road all the while still trying to finish the big goal of getting to azaz and the mathematician to save the princesses
1: yeah and um it reminds me because there was this television show back in like the 90s uh it was wizard of oz but it was like after she defeated the wicked witch and like they kept like getting sucked up in the um the hot air balloon that's how they kept traveling to places but they were traveling through Oz like the entirety of Oz and it was an animated show i don't remember anything else from it like i don't remember if it was well done or you know if there's any voice actors from it i just remember there was this show uh that was you know like a wizard of oz but i think it was like after the wicked witch was defeated and they're traveling through Oz it's it was kind of a not a young kid show like you know vabar or um blues clues or anything like that but it wasn't aimed at like pre-teens i think it was aimed you know for that kind of demographic in between so if i had to make a choice i'd say maybe an animated television show or an a fully animated movie because again that's part of the appeal of phantom tollbooth is that he is in a fantastical world but it's still like based in reality So you could change the different, you have like two different animation styles. You can have one that at the beginning and then, you know, when he travels through the toll booth and it changes slightly, kind of like with the the movie live action to animation because that part makes sense. uh, But at the same time, it makes it feel like a dream that it doesn't actually happen. And there's some weird reality where it kind of does. So um,
0: that's the whole thing of Alice in Wonderland. Did she dream it or did she just go to another world well
1: of course she she didn't dream it she actually went to underland <laughs> so
0: when i look at this book as you describe it to me and we talk about it being turned to a television show which i think you're right as a person who didn't read the book and just saw the movie i think that you're right the music seemed pretty not incidental to the overarching story um for me i really liked the animation. And I liked how the character went, uh, the character's journey went along. And I did sympathize with Milo a lot more than I did when I saw his live action counterpart. This little twerpy kid who's bored by everything. But, played
1: by uh, the kid from The Monsters.
0: Yes, that's right. You told me that. Yeah. Uh, but again, there's something so cool about when a person, you see live action, then you just hear their voice. Their voice acting gets so much better than when I think, especially with kid actors, their voice acting just shines so much, even when their in-person performances don't. And I don't know if that's just something that is being freeing about being inside a booth and not having to play to a camera. But um, I mean, they
1: worked with a lot of voice act like like. For the for that time, that was like this is almost like the cartoon all stars of voice acting. Yeah,
0: a lot of uh, Mel Blank voices. Correct.
1: Mel Blank is a big name in it. Um, is it Buster Draws? Um, I'm looking it up right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dolls Butler, who played Yogi Bear. Um, I'm pretty sure Wilma was in this uh, at one point. Uh, it's Hans or Hans Conrad, who is someone captain hook was in this the original captain hook he also played did you know that captain hook played the grinch in grinch (gasps) night
0: yes i hear it now closer closer ukariah oh so good if you haven't seen grinch night Go wait. watch it and then go listen to our podcast about it. Grinch Night <laughs> is so good. It's such it's such nostalgia bait for me. Um,
1: June Foray, who played the princesses, Princess of Pure Reason, uh, she was Grandmother Faw, uh, Wheezy in Who Framed Roger Ratchet. He, she also played Rocky in Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh yeah, but I thought she was uh, wait she was Granny in the Looney Tunes. Yeah, um, I thought she was. Uh oh! This Sylvester and Tweety mysteries. I remember
0: that show. Yeah, I remember that too.
1: Um, the I thought she was Wilma, and I'm trying to look right now. Mm-hmm. She was Grandma Grammy Gummy in the Gummy Bears. Yeah. Uh, Granny in Tiny Toons.
0: Yeah, right. This is an all star cast. So Ma
1: Beagle in Ducktales, the original one.
0: Yeah, If I can see that. Jokey
1: Smurf in the Smurfs.
0: So for me, the thing that I wish the movie had done. I like the animation, I like the characters that we meet, I like the story as it unfolds, but for me, I wish that there was a bit more authorial intent evident within the story, if you'd like me to elaborate.
1: I do? I'm confused what you mean by that. Um, are you talking about in the movie? In the movie. Okay, so I that's probably going to be one of our last facts, because that is actually a really big fact um that i didn't know she also played cindy lou who and how this grinch stole christmas um i'm still looking i thought she played nope she didn't she played betty rubble or played betty rubble at one point um she played granny in the flintstones but i thought she played oh i was wrong um but norton juster hated this movie so we compare him to Roald Dahl a lot, and this is actually a really big connection between the two. Roald Dahl hates the Gene Wilder, well, hated uh, before his um, uh, his passing, hated hated the Gene Wilder version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. If I had to guess Louis why.
0: If I had to guess why. Roald Dahl hated sentimentality, despised it, loathed it. Sentimentality is for the weak. I grew up during World War II. I got no time for this. I wrote two collections of adult stories that deal with sex and murder and eating puppies. I have no time for any of this.
1: So, the actual trivia is the author of the book upon which this film is based, Norton Chester, did not like this picture and was even angry that it received positive reviews. He had no input in the adaptation. And many characters that were in the book were not included in the film. So, so for
0: me, a fresh adaptation, which apparently there was a live action movie in the works back in 2017, but it got hung up and there's been no word about it since.
1: I thought the, I thought the same thing was going to happen to the Artemis Fowl movie and here we are. Here we
0: are. It may show up again. I think that a, a true adaptation of this particular book, would have more authorial intent. Not even in behind-the-scenes stuff, but moreover, that we really get a sense of what the author thinks of the world that he's created, as opposed to just our everyman going through and learning more about the world. Something about the way that he has all these puns and these characters. Every once in a while in the adaptation, you get a sense of, oh, this is all loony. But it's really kind of hidden, kind of under the belt. Like, the spelling bee, apparently, was Norton Jester... Taking a pot shot at people who do academia for academia's sake. People yeah. who, people more concerned about the composition of the letters and the words than what the words themselves mean. And that's a great take on academia, and it is completely lost with this character of the Spelling Bee in the movie. I wish it was played better, because I thought the humbug was the big asshole, and the Spelling is just trying to teach kids how to spell, and I thought that was cool. But that's not what Norton Jester meant at all, and if I had known that, if it had been played that way, I don't know if that's narration per se, or if that's just being more intent with how you use your characters as they're presented, I think you might have a better shot at this. Or even the fact that King Azaz and the Mathemagician were the ones who banished the princesses, and they should have to have some sort of reconciliation at the end. They should have to come to terms with, we did this to ourselves. I
1: will admit, in the book and in the movie, both of them, the ending is... Not rushed in the book. It's very much rushed in the movie, but it's not rushed in the book. But they don't really expand on it. There's like like a whole half chapter dedicated to it. Um, like because they they throw this huge parade and it goes in a carnival for three days and everyone comes and you know uh the doctor shows people how to make noise and it's just like there's so much to be done, but there's also what's left out that in the movie that kind of works to its advantage is that people actually are no, no, I'm sorry. They, they actually go and try to get rid of the demons of ignorance. So, um, but it's, it's kind of rushed anyways. It's not really much of it. It's just kind of like, and everyone's happy and we have cake and pies and it's just kind of, (laughs) um, I did like the visual representation of the princesses in the movie. They're more abstract. abstract. Damn. Wow. We just did that. It's uh, <laughs> more abstract in the, the movies. Whereas in the the book, they are definite ladies. I kind of like that. They were more abstract, not because I don't want actual ladies, but because how do you represent pure reason and sweet rhyme? It, 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 it's very hard to represent, but like, in the, the movie they're almost angel like, um, or kind of god s like in a way. I'm kinda of stretching on that one. Uh, and in the in the book they're just two kind of pretty ladies. Uh, I did like in the book it's a little they have a little bit more authority on how to get out versus, oh, now that you've come
0: We can leave. We can leave.
1: It's like it makes sense in if you think about it it makes sense because i can't remember if they did this in the book truthfully uh if they were the ones that sent for milo to begin with uh but it wasn't necessarily a rescue mission for the princesses it's a rescue mission for the entire land and the fact that because throughout uh, milo's travels is he's able to kind of ask the right questions at times. He doesn't always do it, but he asks the right questions. He makes mistakes, he gets messy. Um but he the the fact of the matter is, is he goes through and he cares. He cares enough to ask. He cares enough to to try, to, you know, do enough where it is a marked change from when he was at the beginning of the book or uh, or movie to the end. Um, and there's actually a really great little in note for the book, and I think this is a great place to end for us. um, Is that the so the Phantom Toll Booth gets um it gets the Milo, and then he puts it together, and he is able to go through it. At the end of the book, he uh it it kind of closes up on its own, kind of like you see in the movie a little bit. The movie makes it a little bit more zany, uh. But he's like, man, I would love to go back there someday, but I don't know when I'm just I'm too busy. I have too much to do. I've got toys to play with, books to read. I'm going to sit in front of a window and just enjoy what I see. And it just gives him a new uh, lust for life, you know, a new zeal, if you will. And. And it's really kind of an interesting uh, way to to look at things you know it's like he was so bored and, you know this because it was too, um, the note on the phantom told with the beginning is for milo who has nothing to do and it's it's kind of a fun little thing it's, and like at the end yeah he would love to go back someday but he has too much to do now so it's it, it's almost kind of almost like to a it a, a metaphor for growing up. You know, I would love to go back and do this stuff, but I just have too much to do. I have too much work. I have to fix the car, mow the lawn, you know, all that stuff, but it's it's so well written to be able to kind of go through that uh roller coaster with Milo.
0: I'll tell you one thing the adaptation did do right. I am really interested in reading the book now.
1: <laughs> and I recommend that you do. Uh you can even I can try to get you that file, so Um, it's, it's a great book. I highly recommend it. It is still one of my favorites. Rereading it as an adult, uh, made me understand a few things more, but it, it still captured my imagination, even, you know, as a 30 year old versus, you know, an eight year old or 12 year old. So it's a great book. I highly recommend it. And it's gonna, it's gonna be confusing at times for kids, but it should be, it should make them want to learn more about why does infinity keep going on well it's a mathematical theory in this and that you know or uh, why does people why do people like grow up instead of grow down you know it'd be a lot less accidents that way you know it's it's a very it's they, they it inspires a lot of great concepts so the only thing it doesn't inspire apparently is a good cover art for the movie the main three characters Milo talk in the humbug are just sitting in the car and just like, they look like they're stoned
0: out of their minds,
1: stoned out of their gore
0: with just the, it, the exploding sun behind them. It's the it's... weirdest, most bland cover for what was quite honestly, very imaginative and colorful.
1: Yeah. I, and I would give it to that. It was, um, it was very uh, like, you know, the grinch how it had a lot of visual uh things to look at and enjoy this definitely has that so um i i'm very disappointed in the cover artist for the, the the dvd so um i don't know if it's the same for the vhs or not but i i love this book i recommend it go check it out you can get our audible at com slash married to the idea and check out cold of dracula by richard Davis. Uh, and I hope you, I hope everyone who's listening to this is safe. Um, we, uh, I know things are kind of starting to take that downward turn again. Um, it's starting to get a little scary again. And, you know, if you are listening to this, know that we love you and we appreciate you. Um, and, you know, hopefully soon we'll be able to actually get into Halloween movies. Oh, yes. <laughs> so we've got, we've we've got at least one fun idea. So, uh, and if you have any recommendations, we'd love to hear them. Uh, you can throw them anywhere or you can just email them. Uh, you can put them in any of the comments, rather, and you can email it to us. Uh, we're very much, we're getting excited for number 100, so.
0: It's almost here. It's
1: almost here, just like Halloween. <laughs> but until then, my spooky babies, she's been Elizabeth.
0: He's been Aaron. And, and we're, we're married, married to the, the idea. idea.